With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, December 27th, the mediocre Mrs. Maisel edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In our New York studios, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hello, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Um, we should say Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say Merry Christmas because I'm Jewish, but you guys can say Merry Christmas to all of our listeners, um, even though we're recording a little bit before Christmas, but this will air after Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Ha- happy holidays um, to everyone. Happy holidays. Sorry, we don't yeah. say that anymore. Happy holidays. <laughs> what, what, is, what is the... What is the the neutral thing to Here's say? Here's the thing what I do. I, I make a, I, I ask, I have a series of 20 questions that I ask everyone so that I can ascertain the exact religious profile that I should. And then I've got it. It's like a whole, it's like a whole protocol. I ask 17 questions and then I have 25 responses that might be, you know, be appropriate. So, <laughs> yeah. And it also, you sound fun. You yeah. sound like you're a fun guest. How about, so in, there should be one like, what's your preferred pronoun? Like, what's your preferred holiday greeting? Can't we just do it fast like that? Here's the thing, though. As with preferred pronouns, like, we don't ask everybody that, you know? So uh, it was like, we're going to look at someone and think, mm, you look a bit Islamic. I'm going to ask you, hey, so what's your preferred holiday <laughs> greeting? It's 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 a, it's a landmine. It's a, a, Did I ever tell you this terrible story of my friend who was walking through the mall and the Santa Claus was there and the Santa Claus was like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, everyone. And then she passed by and he was like, and happy Hanukkah oh, to you. God. And she was like, fuck you. What? I have a big note. Like, what? what is that? What is that? What is that about? Exactly. Like, I could be Italian. <laughs> I could anyway. be Italian. <laughs> so I guess, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's a minefield right. is what it is. Mm. It's just a minefield. Hey, but so, Happy New Year, everyone. Right. That, that's what I do is Happy New Year. I start doing that in like mid-December. Although, you yeah. know, Rosh Hashanah is some time ago. No, okay. I'm going to leave this now. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's drop it. Okay. All right. Let's go on to do our very holiday-ish topics like <laughs> penthouse. Penthouse. We're talking about penthouse because I'm sure you're sick of talking to your families about anodyne nothing. So we bring you some penthouse. That's right. Um, so our topics. This week is Penthouse Magazine becoming an outlet for the alt-right. I'm excited to talk about that. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, an Amazon show and its particular feminism. I hope you guys have been watching it over the holidays. And then we're going to do a roundup of our favorite, least favorite moments in this insane year in feminism. And then in our Slate Plus segment, which I'm excited about. June, you want to say what we're talking about? I do. We are going to ask if it is sexist that Offset ambushed Cardi B's live performance recently to ask her to take him back. Did I say that with great naturalists as if I'm super familiar with Offset and Cardi B's life moments? Yeah, you sound like you're on The Breakfast Club. You're oh ready. Oh my man. God, I'm so ready. Ready for drive time. All right, cool. Well, you saw it live, right, June? Oh, sure. Just yeah, kidding. absolutely. I yeah. was live streaming it, actually. Yeah. So let's move on to our topics. We will start with Penthouse. Penthouse. Under the banner of free thought. 
porn magazines. Is that what you call them? Skin mag? What I didn't, I couldn't find a 2018 name because it seems weird that they even exist. What's the right name for them? Nudie mags. Mag- <laughs> I think they're porn, aren't they? I mean, what, what? Yeah. But the magazine part, anyway. Okay, yeah. porn magazines. Um, adult magazines. Always... Adult. What? Yeah. Adult magazines. Oh, adult magazines. I like that. Okay, adult magazines. <laughs> have always put themselves in the center of a confused kind of culture war. The latest iteration is Penthouse, which seems to be turning itself into a mouthpiece for the alt-right, or an outpost of the intellectual dark web. Maybe, (laughs) maybe. It's more confusing than that. Uh, But it's this weird brew of anti-feminism, some Jordan Peterson, some Alan Dershowitz, biological determinism, and God knows what else, all the while being run by a couple of women, one of whom has a degree in women's studies. Um... It's funny because, you know how we talked about Victoria's Secret in the last show? Um, Victoria's Secret felt super anachronistic to Mm -hmm. me, like a relic of another age. But somehow Penthouse, even though I didn't even think it still existed, and this kind of free thought rebellion, it makes makes a kind of sense in this moment. Um, So, Noreen, can you just give a couple of examples of what how this got started and and what um, how Penthouse landed in the news? Well, so the. The thing that sort of made the rounds on Twitter and maybe got all of our attention was that in its most recent issue, Penthouse made something called the New Puritans List, um, which included people who had sort of been part of the Me Too movement, um, uh, a writer named Nicole Cliff, does some work for Slate and is very prominent on Twitter and was involved in sort of... um, how would you describe her involvement in the Harper's thing? She she offered a bounty. She offered a bounty for anyone to pull their pieces from Harper's when Harper's was running a piece by Katie Royfe sort of against the Me Too movement. Um, so it has uh, so so it's sort of entering that culture wars debate. I would say, Hannah, that it's kind of entering it in more of an intellectual dark web way than alt right, at least in America. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that actually seems like an alliance that makes a weird amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and ha- Can you explain the distinction? Like what, what, what makes you feel more dark web less? Well, the, I mean, I didn't read the, their version of biological determinism. So maybe, you know, that sort of veers into, to alt-right territory, but my understanding of um, intellectual dark web versus alt-right is that alt-right is like pretty frankly racist, right. And sort of, uh, you know, uses the language of the internet and memes to put forward like really appallingly racist, anti-Semitic, uh, transphobic, you name it, material. Um, whereas the intellectual dark web is like, we're just asking questions and why do we live in a society where you can't ask questions anymore? You know, that why why is this, they're this like rigorous shaming by, you know, people like Nicole Cliff, who they labeled like a mean mommy for her. It was, it was really sort of retrograde, strange caricature um, language. But, but so I think they are putting themselves more in the category of like, we're asking the questions that you're not no longer allowed to ask in polite society because we are the only defenders of like free speech, right? So I think that's where you see the connection is that magazines like this, Hustler, Penthouse have this long history of waging battle on the front lines of, you know, First Amendment law, right? So they have this uh, long-standing alignment with free speech and 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 there's this sort of soft cultural continuation of the free speech conversation that's happening now where it's like, obviously you can say all of this stuff, but is it okay to say it in polite society anymore? That's sort of the, where I see them being intellectual dark web, but also like 
their natural constituency, I think, is teenage boys. And this this kind of stuff really probably appeals to a certain kind of teenage boy, you know, like but you think teenage boys actually go to the store or, or go or like they order it to their house. Why would you do that? I don't know. I, anyway, let's pretend. Boy. Let's just pretend that that's true. Yeah. Well, I think that they might, you know, like you have a family computer, you know, and you don't want to leave. I mean, probably any teenage kid knows how to do a private browser or like turn off cookies or whatever it is but uh i don't know who knows yeah okay well let's just pretend they're natural constituency it totally makes a kind of sense like if you think about anything that hustler was ever famous for uh or um playboy also but slightly to a lesser extent than Hustler and Penthouse in this particular way. Um, it is funny because they're constantly trying to update themselves. <laughs> yeah. Like both Playboy and Penthouse have women at the head now, although Playboy's taken a completely different direction. Well, you um, know, remember we, some years ago we talked about their decision to quit publishing uh, fully naked pictures or fully naked women, I believe, was the was the uh, you know the line that they drew. And they're back to publishing nudes. I mean, that was something that they tried. And in the great uh, way that we do things these days, they experimented, it failed, and they're back to nudies. So, you know, people, I think it's just that we're all, you know, we're all in the same boat these days in the in the magazine industry. Like you try stuff and you keep trying different things because it's it's hard out there for a publisher, you know. But Playboy, okay, so Playboy's winter 2019 issue, they called it the freedom of expression issue. And they had a cover that was not sort of like a like a scantily clad woman it was like a piece of art and it was a piece of art that was essentially like about free the nipple right it was some like german artist uh who who was like protesting the censorship of platforms like instagram right so so free the nipple that kind of thing is like a very and tumblr as we discussed yes, in the last show yes is, is a very sort of lefty feminist thing so then the rest of their issue has uh stormy daniels a profile on Roxanne Gay, wow. 20 questions with Taraji P. Henson, a never-before-published interview with Maya Angelou, Edwin Zantikat, Amir Shiro, and more. And I was like, this could be, like, the cut, right? Totally. Like, this yes. Totally. Fa- now, then they also had uh, Sam Harris and um, a feature on Janice Griffith. And I was like, who's Janice Griffith? I've never heard of that person. And I Googled, and it was, like, a porn star. So <laughs> it is it is Playboy. But they are doing sort of the opposite version of... Um, of like what freedom of expression means, right? They're doing the sort of feminist uh, version, and so I, I that approach actually seems less um, well, more a little less obviously correct to me, right? I mean, because yeah, what do you mean less obviously uh, correct? Cor- like less in keeping with the history of like um, adult magazines and free thought, like the banner of free, th- the particular banner of free thought that they wave usually. I, I didn't mean like ideologically correct or morally correct or anything like that. I just meant it from like a marketing perspective. Right, right. If you're, I, I don't know that your natural readership for Playboy is going to be necessarily people who are like super psyched about a never before read Maya Angelou interview. Now I know that of course Playboy has this long history of doing journalism and and like really a lot of wonderful interviews but those in my memory tended to be more celebrity sort of a swaggery male celebrity the same kind of thing you might read in Esquire and um, this really does seem like a turn towards like okay I'm like a I'm like a woke consumer of Playboy like I, I like the nudes but I also like 
the, the articles, the, art, the poetry. Uh, so maybe there's like a category of the kind of, you know, people who care about liberated sex workers like that, that sort of like, like slice of the, but who that's women. Exactly. That's, See that, that and that I'm, that's why I, I agree with Noreen that, you know, this is all very well. I, I mean, I, I get it as a way of like, again, just trying to make magazines work these days, but ultimately these magazines are about selling pictures of women to stare at. They're ultimately misogynist. And while there have been some kind of temporary moments of overlapping interests, uh, you know, mostly at times in the past, I think, um, there are also obvious paths of divergence. And I like, especially in this Me Too movement, the Me Too movement feels like a time where our paths diverge definitely, that probably... I am definitely stereotyping, but I feel somewhat confident in my stereotyping that I feel confident that the guys, many of the guys who buy these magazines and maybe even subscribe to them, certainly the people, the target audience for them, they are not going to be interested in a profile of Roxane Gay. You know, that's just not a good business move, it seems to me. Like these, the you know, these these men, these complicated men that we've been talking about, Hugh Hefner, Bob Guccione, Larry Flint, they had an interest, a business interest, and probably, you know, an intellectual interest in pushing the boundaries of free speech, of free expression, of sexual expression. But it was not, and so, yes, while there was some overlap, these were not people who were, you know, trying to, help women find their liberation um you know they always wanted to use women and and i like we shouldn't confuse uh this these little areas of overlap with us having the same agenda well hefner well, would have argued that he was trying to help women find liberation and that that is a whole complicated exactly. thing which but it's like who controls the images as we learned with tumblr it's not the fact of the images or that there are nude images or even what the women are doing in the nude images is as we learned in the tumblr conversation it's like it's always been this horrible the, the thing that's most misogynistic about all these magazines is it's like look free thought we're being so bold we publish naked pictures but it's like free thought on the backs of women like women didn't control the images they had nothing to do with the images they didn't own the rights i mean they just didn't own anything about those images so it always seemed like like wildly misogynistic and hypocritical for that reason um and then i guess they added the female ceos that's to me what complicated it but they still don't own the images you know, like Hugh Hefner, like like the children, uh, like all the all the women in charge of these places is a little different. But I guess they're not really in charge. Well, it's a well, it's, a, them are, but... it's a glass cliff situation, yeah, right? Glass, like, yeah, yeah. The, this is a dying industry. Let's bring in the women to a clean it up and b sort of be the like, like everyone knows by now what we've just said that like yeah. these are sexist things inherently. But if you bring in a woman, there's like a free song of like, Ooh, like maybe they're going to change it. I mean, to me what the, the shared DNA is between the, the current rebrandings of both these magazines is that forever and ever they have struck a pose as countercultural. Right. And so both playboy and penthouse in this moment, see sort of freedom of expression as playboy says being restricted. Right. And, you know, Penthouse has gone in this one direction where it's like sort of shaming the shamers, whereas Playboy is trying. I think Playboy is doing an interesting thing where they are saying like, OK, what is the mainstream mm. like in Penthouse's version of the mainstream? The mainstream is like Me Too and Pussy Hats and like Mean Women. Right. And in Playboy's version of the mainstream that they're cutting against with the Roxanne Gay and the Maya Angelou, it's actually like the pornified culture. Right. Mm. So they're selling it on one page and on the other page they're telling you like 
you know, no, 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 no. This is part of like, like you were saying, more of a Tumblr porn aesthetic where it's like arty nudity rather than this like mainstream th- thrown into you. Now, I could be wrong. I haven't looked at the winter 2019 issue. But the- Playboy's always done that. I mean, Playboy's always like the, the history of Playboy's, the history of making you feel like the thing that you're doing is sophisticated and part of a lifestyle, like part of something that is, you know, refined. But but again, uh, like that that's that also fits in with what you were saying, what we said in our last episode about Victoria's Secret that that yes, that was definitely their aim. They were selling a fantasy of sophistication. And oh my God, can you imagine what it must be like to go to one of those parties at the Playboy Mansion? But I think at this point, we all know, even those people who that fantasy may have appealed to, that it's bullshit. That like the by the end, the Playboy Mansion was just a really old guy, you know, just ex- kind of essentially having a bunch of young women trapped in a, in a house. Uh, you know, it was like a horror story instead of a fantasy. And and so it it's still an aging, uh, you know, like a superannuated kind of fantasy. And I think that what the, although there have been changes, like literally in the way the women look, um, you know, now I think they're very kind of pneumatic and shaved and like, but there's still a way that you, this is how you have to look if you want to be in this magazine. You have to have a certain type of body, which is almost certainly surgically enhanced at this point. And it's, you know, so although the fantasy changes, it's still an image and it's still something that's that's created and, and, and sort of pumped out by, you know, the, the image makers who are the people who make the magazine. It's still not like, hey, you know, and, and it shouldn't be. It's, it's never going to be like crowdsourced. Hey, everyone, what's sexy right now? You know, it's it's a mag- it's a it's a product. Well, here's a question. Do we want these to survive these magazines? Right. Like if we think of it in those terms, like is is there any redeeming from a feminist perspective? Is there anything redeeming about adult magazines i think the natural next step is one run by a woman which is a porn magazine well you have that is, that's what penthouse is no but like owned by a woman that it's own penthouse is owned by a woman well i think she sold it this year oh, did she? but but yes until early 2018 in a sort of restructuring uh penthouse was owned by a woman who's like a totally fascinating backstory she was like a reagan sort of right winger in the 80s who was kind of like kicking around la ended up working for penthouse moving up very far and on the like org chart at penthouse and then spent her life savings uh to purchase it and she's this totally wacky woman who called herself a feminist um so it has happened and, but and but like she had bought penthouse like that was penthouse she was still like you know using that brand maintaining that brand elongating that brand that had started like to be a raunchier version of penthouse you know they were it was still very much in the in the path in the tradition of Guccione yeah i mean like first year of Jezebel plus like more porny I think that's what I mean. Well, the woman who's who's editing it now is in this apparently very cool Canadian um like rock band (laughs) she's she's like in her early 30s she's a model slash semi-celebrity slash like internet writer um i'm not sure how she ended up with this job but like she definitely falls into the hipster category so you might get something i mean i think this is maybe an issue that 
has her hands on it. So this new Puritans kind of thing. And there is this strain of like uh, young, quote unquote, cool um, intellectual dark web happening, right? Like there's sort of a pushback against uh, what's happening in the mainstream right now on the left. So you could see it as an outcropping of that. Yeah, and you can definitely see this is a moment when intellectual freedom is a banner that people would be keen to gather under. Uh, wow, so, we've come all the way back around. I, I mean, think we've concluded but I, well, that Penthouse is like super feminist. No, 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 no. We are not saying no, that. No, this is not, not a banner that. that I want to stand under. <laughs> I'm just saying that there there are people, this is a moment when people will gather under this banner, but I don't want to be there, thanks. Right, right. But, you know, it's funny, like I sat and drew all the lines. I was trying to make some political coherence of all the different things that Penthouse had published and believed. And like the only place I ever landed was Stormy Daniels. I was like, Stormy <laughs> Daniels is the one place where all of these strains come together. They just have to put Stormy Daniels on the cover every month. Wait, explain why. Because she's porny, but also like uh, she's transgressive. Feminine. She's porny. She's kind of there's some grudging appreciation for her on the left because she's and she's you know she's helping take like challenge Trump. Um, she's smart. Um, I just. She's smart. Right. All the things come together in Stormy Daniels. All right. There we go. All right. Vote for Stormy. Go Stormy. Listeners, do you have any appetite for a woke porn magazine? And if you did, what exactly would your woke porn magazine look like? And you get extra bonus points if you come up with a name. (laughs) Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, let's move on to our next topic. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a huge Amazon hit starring Rachel Brosnahan as Midge, a Jewish woman in the 1950s, New York, whose husband leaves her and who then starts to venture out into comedy clubs, maybe loosely based on Joan Rivers's life, maybe. It's now in season two, where uh, at this point, her marriage is Dunnish, yes, not it's... completely done. Dunnish. Dunnish. Um, and she is actually breaking away. So, June, when did you start watching Mrs. Maisel? So, I started watching when it first appeared in season one about this time last year, and I really loved it. I thought it was refreshing and fun. And, you know, I'm a big Amy Sherman Palladino fan. She's the woman behind the Gilmore Girls and Bunheads. And it has that fast talking, humorous kind of vibe about it. The kind of setting of New York in the 50s with a woman comedian, um, like it was great. I loved it. I've watched, I think, six episodes of season two and I am not so enamored. I still, I mean, there are fantastic actors, um, but I think that the creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband, Daniel Palladino, largely have fallen a little bit too much in love with like every single character. And we're getting far too much about characters I could care less about. I don't dislike them. I certainly don't hate them. But I've lost track of Mrs. Maisel. And I think that a lot of her faults that we were always supposed to recognize as her faults have just kind of overtaken the show and my, so in season two, my enjoyment has, has declined. 
before before we sort of culturally critique, let's just talk a little bit about what's happening to Midge because mm-hmm. it is a we won't spoil too much. We're just going to sort of lay the like the basic trajectory of season two and what's going on with Midge and who she is because. You know, it's a mad menish era, but it's told from the perspective of one woman really finding one unlikely woman finding her way through and out of the restrictions of that era. So so just can you just lay the basic groundwork like what's going on with Midge at the very start of season two and what are the questions that that season two is asking about her? Well, that's kind of one of the problems, but I'll I'll try to answer your question without getting in getting bogged down in that. So she has now started her comedy career. At the end of season one, her husband caught her act. Um, they were going to get back together again, and then he caught her act and saw that she is a very talented comedian. And he, unfortunately, was not. He was the one who had comedy dreams. He would, you know, work his day job, which was a kind of demanding office job. And then he'd go downtown to comedy clubs and do his, you know, his tight 10. And he was just not good. And he was had no chance of, of, of kind of getting on in that world that it was what he really wanted. He just didn't have talent. And then she has this amazing natural talent. Oh, we never really see her working on her act. She just kind of, she just riffs and it's brilliant. Um, is it? Well, that's the problem. But we're supposed to believe everybody in the show just won't shut up about how brilliant she is and how marvelous she is at every single thing she turns her hand to. Uh, And so when season two begins, she is like poised. Now, the problem is that we then go off on other tangents for a long time. And it's just we just don't even really see her working on that just for ages and ages it feels like forever instead we go to france with her parents does it feel to you like a sincere moment of liberate like like what in the moment since we can talk about this it's just in the first episode in the moment in season two when she stands on stage and is kind of it's like a finding your voice moment um and it's done in kind of clever way because she's in paris and it's actually somebody else speaking her voice um but um she kind of stumbles onto the stage and then is kind of finding her truth out loud on stage um that is a moment I think that's supposed to like feel like a critical turn. Um, Noreen, what did you think of that moment? Like, what did that moment do for you? Well, I had not seen season one when I came into this. So, um, so for me, I might've had a totally different reaction because it was the, I think that was the first time that I had actually seen her really on stage. I could be wrong about that. Um, but what's interesting to me about the comedy that they have her do is it actually feels very modern to me. Yeah. It's not joke driven. It's sort of in the way that modern comedy can almost be like, this is the only real way to express your feelings. You can say things out loud and, and they will be funny because you're, you're saying them on stage and it's sort of self-deprecating. It felt like that to me. Like Joan Rivers is like a if this is based on Joan Rivers, Joan Rivers is like a tight joke teller like that is her thing she's not like a monologuer and and i don't know enough about early joan rivers to know that but i know that she works things over and so i thought that was kind of an interesting like it was more about her being able to express herself on stage in a way she couldn't in her real life and there's a real contrast between her personality off stage and what she does on stage off stage she's like 
perky and driven and she like you know wants to run other people's weddings and she wears pink all the time and then on stage she's working blue she's like very barely barely but for like yeah we're supposed to believe again i haven't seen season one but we're supposed to believe that like she is being championed by lenny bruce um there's a connection with lenny bruce yes uh which you know it's a special bond that they have but yes it's it's hard to believe yeah i mean but she she I guess the it's part of her liberation, right? That and and literally part of like liberating that person, part of her personality is I think what you're seeing on stage. But yeah, the sort of like almost emo ish uh, comedy did not feel um, historically correct to me. And there were a few other places where I I noticed that sort of spilling out in the script. She talks at one point um to to someone about how she has a support system like who's in the 1950s was talking about their support system like that's a way of dealing with sort of like privilege the privilege of this character in you know in like 2018 terms like maybe by a screenwriter who's read some of the criticism of the show but like there were little jarring anachronisms like that where i was like what what is this character like who is she supposed to be yeah, I I can't I can't slide into the show at all. I don't find I don't see where the tension is or where like yeah. the realness or the discomfort and I get that it's supposed to be this like light musical but Crazy Ex-Girlfriend you could see it all the time, right? Yes. Like that was the tension of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is this this like musical but she's like baddie and it's taking like she's so at odds with what's happening in the rest of her world like Mm -hmm. there was just a constant discomfort in how she was behaving in the world but with mrs Maisel, like where i actually i watched a lot of early joan rivers when joan rivers died because my mom is a huge joan rivers fan she was like a big part of my life and so um like the stock and trade of Joan Rivers at, in that era was making people exquisitely uncomfortable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and kind of bringing to light. I mean, she she was a joke teller, so it wasn't the same, but, but, but the joke was always on her and it was always about the restrictions in the moment for women and making fun of them, making fun of herself for not mm-hmm. meeting them, but in a way which was like too much, you know, yeah. it was like, like really, really uncomfortable about her ugliness or stuff her husband was doing, but it was not anodyne. Um, the way this stuff is anodyne, this stuff is like, it's anodyne confessional, mm-hmm. you know, like it wasn't, it's just not, it's not, um, there's just not that much tension. I think the way Emily Nussbaum, the line in her review, which really stuck with me is like, she's a swan and then she turns into a swan. Yes. You know, yes. it's yes. like, it's really, really true. It's like, yeah. like she's like, lovely there's nothing really wrong she handles her divorce with grace she cries once on the phone and then it sort of gracefully slides on through uh everybody just looks up at her adoringly like what's the tension yeah you know um for me it was more the energy of the show that i found off-putting it's just this like perky kitsch if that makes sense or like it's like it's like sort of claustrophobic in its upbeatness and there is no that's that's both the personality of the show and the personality of Mrs. Maisel. So if you think about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, there's like a knowingness about like the sort of uh, insan- everything. Yeah, about but also about the insanity of its of its character main character yeah. and the the like Amy Sherman Palladino thing is is yeah just claustrophobic. I just keep coming back to that. Mm-hmm. It's it's like everything has to be jokey but not a joke if that makes sense um like i didn't think the show was very funny Mm-mm. um i did get sucked into the world because i love sort of costume design mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing but like i didn't think it was funny i 
my my teeth were just put on edge by it. Like Mrs. Everyone talks about how appealing Rachel Brosnahan is, and to me, there was like she was she was like spinning her engines too much for me. Like it was just mm-hmm. every it was so try hard. It's so try hard. Yeah, yeah. Paris was try hard. Oh. The everything was just like on the nose stereotypes about yeah. Paris, about visiting Paris, yeah. about Jews, yeah. just like the about Jewish every father. ethnic yeah. group, every ethnic yes. group. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So so maybe the last thing we can answer is why is the show so hugely popular? Is it because it's beautiful? Is it because it's some people find it sort of easy to take in? It's because her daffiness is like she's just like the, you know, um, it's escapist. Um, yeah, I like, did. I mean, I did find I liked her manager as a character, Susie. I yeah. found like yeah. some of the secondary characters were appealing. But but what she had that no one else in the show had was kind of like insouciance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I right. mean, it's a that's a really good question, Hannah, of why is it popular? I mean, I, I do think that season one was better than season two. I mean, season one that won a lot of awards, I think like six Emmys, uh, which, you know, were not totally undeserved. Um, and this season, I think it's I don't know. I think it's gotten the, the I really do think a problem was that the creators fell in love with too many of the secondary characters. There's much too much about the parents. There's much too much about her ex-husband, which I understand when you have kids together, your your former partner is always in your life. And like, yes, I we can justify it that way. But I, I'm not interested in him anymore. I don't care. You know, give me some more about Susie. Give me something about the people who are central, you know, it's, Put the, pe- put the people who you say are important in this show at the center of it instead of just kind of making me watch two hours of like, you know, the Catskills in 1959, which I'm only really watching because I've stayed at that hotel in real life. And that's really the only the only thing that's keeping me paying attention. Like there's just a lot of, of distraction. Like they lost, I think they lost sight of what was interesting about the show. So, you know, it's it's good enough to watch, which I think is is a kind of a prevailing uh, aesthetic right now. Like we're all just looking for something good enough. Um, but yeah, I think the second season is is considerably worse than the first. I think people like the set design. Yeah, I think it's, they're it's beautiful. And I I was a Gilmore Girls fan, although now I don't I don't know. But uh, yeah. I I think people like the Amy Sherman Palladino world, and I also think that there is something doubly escapist about how simple her problems are right like the world actually was simpler and like like she is sort of cosseted and her her like her struggle is not that hard and it's so easy to see like it's just like a moment in women's liberation where it was so obvious that like everything was for women like that for women like that that things were going to get better and that it was a like relatively simple fix you know there there it wasn't sort of as complicated that's what i think it is i think it's just not hugely challenging but just challenging enough not to be clueless you know like (laughs) it, it is about an era it does highlight a woman she does have some struggles but it's it's fairly limited like it's nothing like the the kind of tension and dark darkness of Mad Men. It's nothing like that level of kind of challenge and struggle. You know, like, she's going to make it. It's like a Mary Tyler Moore level, (laughs) like, she's going to make it kind of thing. And she always wears a hat, so she'd have something to throw up in the air. Exactly. It's like like a nice pretty white lady with some problems and she's got a and she's cool enough because she does comedy and it feels like comedy of our moment. So she's relatable and you can root for her like it's that simple, yeah. you know, and it's pretty and like people are wearing interesting clothes. And so you can think about vintage shopping. 
Is that like that's totally dismissive? Anyway, no, okay, listeners, we're we're doing this is like the my favorite murder moment where we don't we're not one hundred percent inhabiting the love. So if you are a real lover of this show, why don't you why don't you set us straight and explain to us uh, in 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 our non patronizing way why this show is marvelous? Uh, we would appreciate it in if you take us to task. So you can write us an email at thewaves at slate dot com or tweet at us. Let's move on to our last segment, the lows and highs of this year in feminism, our least favorite and our favorite moments. This will be a roundtable. Let's start with least favorite. Noreen, why don't you go first? Your low point in in lady news for this year. <laughs> okay. I will just throw out the obvious one, which maybe you guys already have, which is K- Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation and the whole circus around that. I just feel like that cannot go unmentioned. Um, I sort of felt not exactly the same as I felt after Donald Trump's election, but the day after Kavanaugh, when I had seen it so clearly one way and then half of the world had seen it the other way, I just felt uh, really kind of despairing. Um, So Kavanaugh was just on paper, I think, for me, the lowest. Um, can I can I debate w- with you about why I didn't put that as my okay, lowest? Okay, even though it's obviously the lowest. Okay, so for me, um, I, of course, that is like that is hands down the lowest. Like historically, of course, you're right. Like when we look back historically, that's going to be like a real depressing moment that just kind of highlighted that things hadn't changed as much as you thought, and that certain men mm-hmm. still ruled the earth, and what men could get away with, and how women could be just silenced and ignored. Like for sure, that is the moment of the year that is going to historically go down as the low point. Um, The only reason I didn't is because like the experience of watching it, and in our case, we watched it um, here at Invisibilia. We were were in the middle of an edit session. We couldn't continue the edit session. We just turned on the TV. And we're a lot of women, or all women at this moment. I'll actually not write this second. But so we turned on the TV and watched it. And there was something just so obviously like loosening and, and kind of galvanizing. Like I was trying to think there's some moments that just kind of cracked things open in a certain way, like the way people shared around that, the way people told their stories, the way people were furious, like there was some bounce back, you know, Mm -hmm. against the Brett Kavanaugh moment that kept me from from feeling it as the absolute low point because it created a kind of counter energy. So I tried to think in my head, like what creates counter energy and what just is like a dead blank space. Yeah, although he um, does. He's now on the Supreme Court for a very long time. That's true, except he's going to be on the Supreme Court for a very long time. And that, Um, you know, and that reminds me what you're saying. I mean, I totally get what you're saying, Hannah, but it kind of, you know, it reminds me of the last time that I remember the situation you described. Uh, when I first started at Seal Press, a feminist press, we always were, you know, this was before the internet, but we were always, were, you know, very heads down. But we had a television, I think we maybe even brought a television in the office for the Clarence Thomas hearings. Mm. And, you know, it was that same level of like, can you believe this? And and it, and that also was, you know, the opposite of a victory. And then it felt like however many years later it was, was it 20 years later, 25 years later, suddenly like... Everybody was looking back at that and saying, well, can you believe what happened then? And we're going to be different now. And even though it wasn't like the sad part about it is that sometimes that, yes, you see a crack, but like it doesn't actually break for decades. Right. And and I think, uh, again, you know, I feel like I'm the amplific- amplification queen here. But like, Noreen, I know just too what you mean about that moment of like, I see this so clearly and yet at least half the country yeah. sees it entirely the other way. And that's kind of a little bit crazy making. Yeah, totally. Because it's like, 
And did, we, did we watch the same? Yeah, exactly. Man you know, who, do you trust me or your own lying eyes? Like, yeah. well, I don't know. Apparently, are my eyes wrong? Are my ears wrong? No, I know they're not. But how can you do? And so that that is, it's a very kind of dis. I don't know. It it, it shakes up your entire life and and makes you ask so many questions that it, it's very disturbing. Well, can I give you guys also my backup one in case someone had already taken Kavanaugh? Because this to me was also a moment of just like kind of despair. Sort of like I should have been ready for it, I guess. But um, when Eric Schneiderman, when it was revealed that he, too, had been abusive towards women, he was someone who had been such a champion of women, you Let's know. Say who he is. Oh, Eric Schneiderman was the New York attorney general who um, was revealed to have been terribly abusive in relationships. Um, and he's someone who had been, you know, out there on the front lines, like really sort of prosecuting Trump. And it just was this moment, like, of course, there's misogyny on the left, but it was just sort of like a, you know, the rug pulled out from under you kind of moment. So that one's depressing, too. Although, like, even with those moments, I'm just maybe I'm just an idiot optimist. I feel like, oh, there's there's just like an opening there because nobody gets to be pious. And like now you're sort of all on you're all on on call. You're so true. Like, that, no, I yeah. like that. I like that. Yeah. You're such a seeker yeah. of nuance, Hannah. You want to go next, Jen? Sure. I mean, mine is is something of a glass half full situation. And like I remember earlier this year being really depressed about like even in this even in on, on this show when we were talking, we would kind of you know, like be preemptively depressed because we would conclude that like, oh my God, they're going to get away with it, aren't they? Uh, so I'm thinking, for example, of like Roseanne and and saying and doing horrific things, uh, offensive on so many levels. And I thought that she'd get away with it. And then fairly swiftly, her show was cancelled. And that was like a surprise. And then just as like we've had conversations about Les Moonves and how he was, oh, will he even get fired? And then he got fired, but then it looked like he was still going to, you know, take home a, you know, 162 million, was it, settlement? And then, wow, he's losing his money. No, he deserves to. She shouldn't have had a show. But like there are these moments where these where I've gotten, you know, in my life, I've I've learned to not be optimistic. And wow, actually, maybe, maybe things, at least on some fronts, these are all still a bunch Which of white people. Which, this is a high, not a low. Well, except it was a low. It was a low of like, I was convinced. And then you're right, that like the worst turned out to be because Les the best. Because Les Moonved was, was going to be one of my highs. Like, yeah, well, the, yeah, it ended up being a, a that, high, but it started as a low because I was absolutely convinced. Why that, won't like, you guys despair with me? What is wrong here? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like, yeah, mine is really not going to convince you guys because my first was Larry Nasser because it was just oh, like, my God. God damn, like they're just one after another after yeah. another. But like... In my, you know, but then I could, it wasn't clean for me because it was one after another after another. And like that crazy courtroom scene where mm-hmm. all those young women got to have their say, like one after another. And like the judge created this like just huge space for women to talk and talk and talk about it. So, um, so, um, so I couldn't see it as totally dark. You're not going to agree with the one I chose because it's so bloodless. But for me, for some reason, the one that stuck was kind of a joke. It was that Amazon sexist AI, which we discovered a little bit. Um, This was Amazon was trying to kind of um, 
automate its hiring and created this system that picked out candidates from the web. And the system wound up penalizing resumes that included the word women's, as in like women's chess club captain, or people who um, had gone to women's schools, and that just became one of its disqualifiers. Um, and, and we had this conversation about Spotify, too, and why women didn't appear on the top list. And that just seems like flat out depressing to me, that there's going to be this like faceless ghost of a thing that is just incredibly hard to combat, not just in Amazon, but in all kinds of things, the way algorithms are just going to quietly and in a ghost-like manner reify sexism in a way that we're not even going to notice, or we're going to have real trouble fighting because it's all going to be happening in these codes. Um, And so somehow I find those things really depressing because I feel like it doesn't galvanize anybody. Nobody really notices, but it's huge and it, and it affects things in all sorts of ways that we don't really notice. Um, And it's just going to take us a few years before we like catch up to the sexism of algorithms and do something about it. it yeah, because it's it's like, in a way, I've always felt bad about those things. Like, you're going to force me to pay attention to this now. And the fact that, you know, you, the sort of the, the, you can never relax on any front because even something like, you know, now we have to pay attention to what uh, AI is doing. You know, I, I've already got 17 things I'm monitoring. Give me another <laughs> one now. You know, like, yeah, it's annoying from that point of view. It's like no, it's- as we're fighting history, like history is getting encoded in these huge systems mm-hmm. that we, you know, don't much know about, don't have much control over and don't really get us exercised or heated or upset. Yeah, um, that really bums me out. I think they do get us exercised when we hear about them. But the problem is hearing about them because they're, as you say, they're. You know, it's just a bunch of zeros and ones. What am I going to see here? Well, it's also just harder to fix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a good depressing one, Hannah. Thank you for despairing with me. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. I would just want to do flat depressing. Depressing with no bounce. Um, Okay. Let's do the good moments, guys. Let's have some happy moments. Let's go around again. Noreen. Okay. I'm going to cheat again and do one for culture and one for politics. Okay. So my cultural high was Killing Eve. What a great show. It was written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Sandra Oh, finally, like, getting a leading lady role. She was fantastic. Jodie Comer, who was just, like, riveting to watch. It was dark and sadistic and subtle, and the costumes were great, and I just really loved that show, and I'm so happy it was in the world. Um, And then my high moment, I'm just going to be really basic and say Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I just think that she is such an exciting... uh, force who Mm -hmm. has emerged in 2018 and is uh, reacting to politics in totally alchemically changing ways. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And just in the way that I saw kind of positives in the big negatives, like I'm I just also see how much kind of stress, how many eyes are on her, how much she's in the spotlight, like what a position to be in that she does. You know, she's so young. She is so dynamic. She's you know, she's you know, her Instagram stories are, are in some ways changing the way people see politics. But oh my God, so much pressure. It it makes me it makes me sweat just to just to think of the situation. But she's, she's handling it. That's what's yeah, great. She's yeah, really awesome. handling it. Yeah. And Ju- Noreen, I'm really glad you said that because I feel I, I I've always felt like in our when we discussed the Instagram accounts of the young women, mostly young women of color who entered Congress in this first class, I feel like we were a little clinical. 
You know, mm-hmm. like we were doing an analysis of their Instagram accounts mm-hmm. kind of in a close, close way, but didn't like and what it would do to open up politics, but didn't just like do the straight up like this is great. You know, this is, is such a new great thing, which is I, our job. Like, right. We're supposed to be journalists <laughs> and critics. And this is just me as a person being like, this was this made me feel good about the future and the present. Yeah. June, what do you got? So uh, I am not very good at these uh, year end things. Uh Love Noreen's. Um, I love how there are, uh, you know, tons of like in this classic moment right now of like the end of the year when the prestige movies come out. There are so many of them this year that are just directly about gender and sexuality and uh, people doing interesting things in those areas. And that's kind of amazing. Like it used to be you just had to see one movie every year and you could see like the queer movie. And now it's like, wait. There's another one. There's another one. There's like, that's kind of amazing. I also have to say, like, just to channel um, Noreen's just like, this made me happy. So I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I I watch like, you know, crafty videos. They're they're very, very basic. It's me at my most basic. But this year I found some that it just kind of pleased me to find like lesbians talk, you know, when they do their little scrapbooking videos, the pictures are of their wife and their child and there's another woman who I watch who always describes herself as Middle Eastern but she's and she I don't think she's ever said that she is a Muslim but she clearly is like she's you know now when everybody is talking about Christmas she's like well we don't do Christmas and she doesn't you know she doesn't clearly doesn't drink in a way that a lot of people have like their rosé or whatever but she like shows the Arab gathering in Georgia and she's very clearly a liberal and I just kind of love seeing these women who are like showing themselves and their own life and like the pictures of their kids and their lives. And they are very open about the fact that they're not like the other, you know, they're not Mormon moms of six in Utah and they're not hiding who they are. And, you know, that really takes some guts, I think, because there is a great pressure in that world to be everybody to be the same. And I love that they apparently feel comfortable to be themselves. And I I really enjoy watching them. Yeah, I felt that way about the discussion we had about the political ads, you know, just the like sitting down and watching the proliferation and political ads of women behaving and speaking in different ways, like just looking different, just talking about their lives in different ways. It was just like such a sigh of relief, because women in politics are just always in this tiny, tiny little narrow lane. And you know, they're just like, they're uptight in there and just keeping out most of their lives. It was such a, it was so, it was so much fun to do. Uh, I'm talking about Essie Ruth Makes. That's one of the YouTube channels that I really like. And My Little Journal is another one. And we'll include those names on our show page if you can't spell them. What's yours, Hannah? Okay, so besides the political ads, which I just mentioned, I think it was Hannah Gadsby. Now, I know oh, that's God. dark as a high moment. Um, I realized that it wasn't like she's not like the rah rah, like lesbian craft booking type vibe, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but, um, but, but, but it was for some reason, it just like a captured for me a way of having optimism and making sense of your life despite all darkness Mm -hmm. you know like a way of like confessional sort of being misunderstood like all the things that women feel all the time and yet it was somehow like captured and accepted in the mainstream totally successful and to me just totally optimistic as a way of being able to make sense of yourself while not 
like Mrs. Maisling it, you know, like while not like leaving behind all the tension and darkness. You can kind of bring that with you and still wrap up a really like a a, a way forward. Um, so I, I found that that that's my kind of inspiration is Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, it was an amazing special, and it it I know exactly what you mean. It's again this 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 vibe of finding the best from the worst, uh, which seems to be something of a. Uh, yeah, because you can look back at this year and be like, God, this year was the worst. It was mm-hmm. like Me Too and Story Upon Story of Assault and like Brett Kavanaugh and Larry Nasser, And it's just like endless, endless, endless. And even the guy who's supposed to help us is turns out that he's a real abuser. It's like, you know, like, where do we turn? Like, where are we supposed to look? You know, we have Donald Trump as president. And yet, like, despite all that, there's a way that you can tell a story about yourself that makes sense, that soothes you, and that shows you a path forward. So I feel like she did that for me. Right on. All right. Well, listeners, please share with us your highs and lows of this year. If they're not included on our list, we would love to hear about them. You can email them to us at thewavesatslate.com, or you can tweet them at us at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, or at Hannah Rosen. All right. Recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us? Um, my recommendation, I believe June has also read and recommended on a different slate podcast. Um, the book, the forthcoming book, Talent by <gasps> Juliet Lapidus. So good. Juliet is a former colleague of ours from Slate. The book is out, I believe, at the end of January, but you can pre-order now on Amazon. Um, it is so funny and smart, which should not be surprising given <laughs> Juliet. Um, but it is about a. P- a English literature PhD student who is sort of failing and flailing. She's at a, um, you know, it, the town is called New Harbor. She's clearly at a version of Yale and she is trying to come up with a thesis and she cannot. And she hits upon um, a thesis that's essentially about procrastination. Uh, she finds the through through a series of coincidences, she finds the papers of um, a figure who seems kind of like a J.D. Salinger type of figure who wrote books that are beloved by young people and then he sort of stopped writing and hold up. Um, and it's just, yeah, funny, clever, layered with sort of meaning. Um, and I was just so excited to, to find out Juliet is a great novelist. So yeah. talent, Juliet Lapidus. Awesome. That just showed up at my house. I'm excited to read it. Okay, I just discovered something that's like so awesome and so just perfect for me anyway. The Norsemen. Have you guys watched The Norsemen? No, what is it? Oh my God, it's so freaking funny. Um, It's a Norwegian comedy show. It's like Monty Python meets Game of Thrones. Just trust me here and watch the preview. It is so freaking weird and funny. (laughs) It's actually filmed in Norwegian, but then they do retakes in English, which I think it's like twice as funny in English because they're doing like fake kind of Norse accents. Um, It's just like... 2018 Monty Python. Just trust me. Just like watch the preview over break. It is so funny. Um, my daughter introduced it to me and I was like, oh my God, this is like the best thing I've ever seen. And you can watch it on Netflix. Awesome. All right, June. So <laughs> I get one last chance to mention, have I mentioned it yet today that I was just in Australia? And on the flight, I I flew on Qantas. This is not a sponsored uh, endorsement. Um, and I got to watch 
a show that was like the funniest and best thing that I've seen in a long time. And I would almost but not quite recommend flying on Qantas just so you can watch it because I don't think it is available in the US. But it is a show called Utopia. And it's very much if you've watched WC1A or 2012, there's a sort of a big stream of, of British comedy that's basically a workplace comedy where the entire place is completely dysfunctional and everybody but one or maybe two people are just idiotic. And this is one of those kind of shows, but I actually found it funnier than WC1A and 2012. Uh, And it's set in uh, the sort of infrastructure department, the Australian, I think it's can't remember the name of the uh, the entity, but it's basically a place that's all about building Australia's infrastructure. And it is hilariously funny um, and never like I don't really like that kind of excruciation comedy. I don't want it to be excruciating. I just want it to be a f- just want it to be funny. And this manages that of like being awful and just making you feel so grateful for your place, not your place of work, not being quite this awful. Um but at the same time being really, really fun and funny. So Utopia, if you can find it somewhere, I highly recommend it. Oh, my God. We're so international. This is like international comedy show. Absolutely. Uh, well, that is our show for today. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, to our production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Or you can tweet at us, at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen. We absolutely love hearing from you. I hope you have a great rest of break. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.